Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is El Dr. Héctor Ochoa. Dr. Salvador Héctor Ochoa is president of Texas A&M University here in San Antonio since fall semester of 2023. He's originally from McAllen, Texas. He is a nationally regarded scholar and researcher who has served in various roles, including faculty, dean, and provost. He graduated from Texas A&M in a college station with a PhD in school psychology. Bienvenido a este episodio, Presidente Ochoa. Buenos días. Buenos días. Uh, first of all, congratulations on the job and welcome back home, not only to Texas, but also to the A&M family. Uh, tell me about growing up in the RGV. What was it like growing up there? Being from the Rio Grande Valley is, is really special. And when I reflect on that, maybe it's good to put a context. I was born in 1960, so I'm talking about the Rio Grande Valley in the 1960s and 70s. And, you know, when I think of growing up in the Rio Grande Valley, you know, it's really important to put a kind of a context. I remember the valley. I just remember the open fields. You know, it was primarily rural and agricultural and ranching. Mm -hmm. And so I have very fond memories of the orange groves, uh, the grapefruit groves, uh, the cotton fields, and all the vegetation fields. That if you were driving on rural roads or along the highway that you could see. And I remember as a little kid, you know, very vividly um, seeing the crop duster planes, but they would come down very low and... Uh, spray the pesticides in the fields and we would always challenge us how low could they go without crashing or you know <laughs> hitting the wires but I also you know remember the beautiful palm trees and the the rows of the palm trees and how they swayed in the wind and so you know looking and growing up in the valley within that context it was also a place when you look at that topography It was also a real um, bridge, and it was a, a marriage, I say, a blending of two cultures and two languages. And so I really got to learn and appreciate my own cultural background and heritage and language and learn another language and learn both, if, you know, really in that. And back home, everybody would, you know, while we primarily spoke English at home at first, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, mm -hmm. is that, you know, everybody learned to speak two languages because everybody spoke it in your community and you'd code switch back and forth. And if there was a better way to communicate something or feeling or thought in Spanish, you could interchange back and forth and you could get your, you know, message across. And I remember uh, with growing up 10 miles from the border, um, from Reynosa, McAllen, Hidalgo, and then Reynosa, Mexico, you know, my father would always take us across my family. And what really impressed me is we'd get our haircuts there. We would eat there. But what I saw across the border was a poverty that I'd never seen before. And not that the valley was rich by any means, mm -hmm. but in comparison and how people really 
worked very, very hard. You know, when you see that, it, it just left a, a very important impression, especially for me to understand when I would later do work about students who would immigrate to this country. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even with that wonderful feeling, you know, and the sense of optimism, you know, the Valley, growing up in the Valley was very sheltered. We always said the joke was that the, the world ended in Falfurias, Texas. <laughs> and, you know, but I think what's, what, you know, when you, even if you look at that context, I think what really one of the most vivid memories I have, Elena, is that while those are Rio Grande Valley, the people who lived there called it the Magic Valley. And by that I mean is that there was, the valley was, you know, really uh, brimming, overflowing with hope that while there were hard times for many people in my community, that there was a hope for a better tomorrow and that the sacrifices that your grandparents and parents made for you, uh, you'd live a better life through those sacrifices and so there was that brimming of, of importance of hope through education. You know, there's a real sense of community that, you know, I remember that we knew all of our neighbors. We would talk to them, would play after school. There was a, a real brimming of the importance of family, uh, extended family. I mean, I remember every Sunday going from McAllen to see one grandparent in La Feria, Texas, and the other one in Mercedes, and all your cousins were there. And so the importance of family, um, that family came first, uh, the sense of a real sense of um, faith. And so when you really look at, when I look at the valley, where many people would say, you know, historically, the valley has been one of the most underserved areas in the country. Mm -hmm. I don't see the valley from a deficit perspective. I thought there were so many things in the valley that really instilled in me uh, that I hold very important today about faith, about family, about the importance of two languages and cultures and valuing both. Mm-hmm. And that really, to this day, and it affects the career that I do, is that the ticket for a better tomorrow is education. So, you know, I, I felt that being in the valley, although it was very sheltered in many ways, and, and I didn't leave the valley many times as a young kid, to say the least. But I think that it was a beautiful place to be raised and to really appreciate everything that it had to offer. So I just have very fond memories uh, of the Rio Grande Valley. Right, right. And so um, can you talk to us about your experience in the K through 12 system in McAllen, Texas? Sure. I went to Victor Fields Elementary in McAllen in South Texas. You know, the principal said, and I'll never forget this as a young kid, that Whatever you do in your life, you'll always represent Fields Elementary. <laughs> and I think that when you look at my upbringing in the, this system, is that there was a real respect for teachers. As a matter of fact, you know, growing up, you know, there were four things that I knew. There are four women that you learned to value. Your grandmothers, your mother the Virgin Mary, being Catholic here, <laughs> and your teachers. Mm-hmm. And they, those were sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. Those were just very, very important. And in that school system, uh, being part of that system is that not only academic success was important, 
but your behavior was equally important because you represented your family right. about what it meant to be buen educado. And I say that because there was a real sense of respect for teachers that they knew best what was in our best interest. So our parents never questioned, never challenged um, teachers. They know best. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, within that system, you know, there was a real sense that it was so important. You know, I remember my parents and my grandparents just really telling me the importance of an education. And I, you know, one of the fond memories I have was in third grade out in the playground. Hearing my parents and my grandparents talk about the importance of an education in college, that I began to wonder, where am I going to go to school in third grade? <laughs> and, you know, that, that, that still, that, that real strong, you know, uh, belief right. was very, very important. And, you know, I really believe that, that back then uh, in the K-12 schools, there was no bilingual ed. And I remember my mother, I asked my mother, why didn't you speak to us in Spanish at home? And she goes, you know, Hector, when I went to school, she went to school in Couchelsa, Texas. She mentioned that they were punished for speaking Spanish. And she didn't want her kids to ever feel that way and to be ashamed. So we learned it from our grandparents. We learned it by in the community. But she wanted to make sure that we knew English because she didn't want us to experience what she felt growing up. And so in the schools, I have very vivid memories that in my experience, um, what happened was is that in McAllen, in South McAllen Fields, that we had true diversity. We had the labor camp migrant students who would come start the year like in October, late September, October, when they worked from the fields. Mm -hmm. And they would leave in April or in the spring to go up to work either in California, Washington, or the Midwest. And so I saw students come in and go and leave, and I thought, God, they're at a disadvantage because they're not getting the first beginning and they're not getting, you know, the back end. You know, it's interesting that for me, being in the Valley, I remember my elementary school (laughs) uh, had no central air and heat. (laughs) The only place that had air condition was a library with the wall unit. So we love going to library. And I remember the big fans blowing and you having to put your, you know, papers, hold on your papers and it being hot. But I saw teachers who really genuinely cared. And growing up uh, in, in the Valley, I would say that I only had, I think in my elementary, maybe two Hispanic teachers. Mm. But, and they were all female except for one, my um my math teacher that when would they rotated. But I really saw a sense of real growing up that uh, given that our, my elementary school was very close to the hospital, that we had students that we had migrants, we had working class families. We also had families of kids of doctors. And so I really saw and left a real lasting impression on me that people come with different experiential background opportunities when they go into schools. And that has a huge, that can be a huge asset for people. I feel that compared to my fellow peers, most of my peers growing up in high school, that I felt really lucky and fortunate. And I say that because my parents could speak two languages. 
And that wasn't the case for a good number of my classmates. And I remember in elementary school, a very dear friend who I have today said, you know, Hector, my world of home and my world of school are so different. They were interpreters for their parents when they went to schools. I didn't have, I didn't have to do that. I saw that my parents had a high school education. And so I had assets and strengths, maybe not compared to others, those who were uh, children of doctors, but I felt really privileged and advantaged. And I really got to see that while I felt very blessed that my parents had a high school education and that could speak two languages and really understood you know, the importance of that. And so I think going through the school system, I felt very fortunate in, compared to, you know, in comparison to my peers. And I did well, very well academically. I love school. It came easy to me. I'm very, very grateful when, you know, teachers would say, you know, you're really good. You know, you, you really, you know, really can excel. When you get that plug put in your ear and you're told about, boy, you've got a lot of potential. You know, I remember, it's a long story, but I even remember my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Brown, telling me, you know, Hector, I know you don't like going to the reading lab, <laughs> but I will tell you, you're the smartest kid in my class in every subject. And, you know, just to be told that you're capable, I truly value that. And the role of a teacher for me is, is really profound. But I, I honestly believe that I'm a very firm believer in, in K-12 and public schools. And I really feel that McAllen ISD did fulfill its promise to me. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. During your time in the McAllen ISD, did you have many uh, Latino, Hispanic teachers? I think as I progressed in middle school and high school, I did have more. They were very, very important to see people like you, you know, in places. With my daughter, I'll never forget when we lived in, when I taught at A&M and she was uh, going to school in College Station. And she asked me one time, my wife and I in kindergarten, she goes, you know, Dad, why aren't there more Hispanic teachers? And I said, what do you mean, Victoria? She goes, well, you know, I see a lot of Hispanics, but they're the custodians or they're the ones who work in the cafeterias. Kids you know, having role models is, is a real asset and a real, you know, benefit because I think it's important that people see people like them uh, from a similar background in roles that their community wants to be or aspires to become. But it's very, very critical. But I did have them as I grew up. Uh, you know, McAllen was overwhelmingly um, Hispanic. I would say well over 80% of my class. I graduated from a large graduating class of over 800. I did very well, ranked quite high, proud of that. Um, but I felt like that as a whole, while many people got through, you know, I also uh, got to see many students who didn't cross that finish line. Mm -hmm. And I think that left a very critical impression on me. Right, mm -hmm. right. How did those experiences inform your desire to go into higher education and especially working with the K through 12 systems? I mean, you just mentioned that education, you know, that mm. planted a seed on you and what yeah. you saw really inspired you to maybe mm. perhaps look into, mm. into that more deeply. Yeah, I believe that my journey has, has had a profound impact of what I choose to do in my career. Mm -hmm. And as I just said, you know, when you see many of your classmates, uh, maybe whose families 
only spoke one language or predominantly mm -hmm. Spanish or not as well fluent in English, uh, whose parents never graduated from high school. I feel that what I saw is I saw a lot of my classmates, Elena, who had just as much ability as I had, right. but little or no means to develop them. And when some of them would tell you, you know, Hector, this is, you know, for them to, to graduate, I mean, was a huge milestone. Mm -hmm. But when they said, this is the end of the road for me. And when you, some of your classmates tell you, Hector, we know you're going to go far. <laughs> you know, it just leaves, you know, when you see that unfulfilled potential, you know, it leaves a lasting mark. You know, when you see people, whether it's by not knowing how to navigate that system, that bridge from K-12 to higher ed, the fear of debt, or that that seems that that's impossible for them. And so for me, I think what I saw that that left a very, very lasting impression on me. And then not only that they had little or no means to develop them, but the other thing is what people think, you know, that sense of self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I had parents and grandparents who it's like it was instilled, ingrained in everything. You know, in third grade, I started thinking, where am I going to go to school? And, you know, that think of, you know, that belief, and I that left a really significant thought process and made me reflect. And so I did my undergraduate degree in psychology because I really felt it was important to know what people think and feel. And then, you know, I thought maybe I could make a difference. You know, I thought maybe I could go into law. That wasn't for me. <laughs> but I'm glad, you know, the and then looking at how students learn from an ed psych background, you know, why is it that some kids have the outcomes that they do? So for me, what I didn't want to see um, that was very important to me is, Elena, I didn't want to see generations of unfulfilled potential. I think for me and how that's influenced me now is that being in administration and being president at Texas a San Antonio is, I think I have a very different view. And by that is, yes, I'm responsible for all those students who come here and get everything to get them through. But I got to tell you, I really genuinely worry about those who never get here. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's about really uh, what do we need to do to cultivate and enrich and empower that pipeline? Mm -hmm. Because if I only worry about those as president who come to me, which I have a due responsibility to do, but really don't reflect on how I need as a university president, especially in, in South San Antonio, about working in K-12 and really looking at this, not just at the 13 to 16 to 18 pipeline, but really looking at this from a pre-K and birth mm -hmm. to that, then I'm worried that I'm going to see what I saw with many of, uh, some of my classmates who that road was there and what set into the possibility. So I think that that really informed how I approach my work as a dean how I do my work as a provost and how I do that as a president. You know, and, and I think one of the greatest things I had as a faculty member and administrator when I worked at in the Rio Grande Valley, what was UTPA and the Dean of the College of Ed and now UTRGV, was that I really reflected, and it was very powerful for me to, for me to have this insight, and it's very genuine, in that I realized that I was a beneficiary of Pan Am, 
because I did my master's there, well before I ever attended there. And I say that because they prepared teachers who educated me. And it was a full circle moment to know that now I played a role as dean, that the teachers that we produced were going to be educating my own kids in McAllen and my nephews and nieces. And when you, you look at that from that role, that I always tell myself as a dean, I want to produce those ed teachers that I would want to educate with my very own children or my own nephews and nieces. And if I can't say that, then we're not doing our true job. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, to me, it's, it's about what does that mean for the community that you serve? And so when I look at that, these experiences as a dean and, a, and as a president, I think that those experiences growing up uh, really genuinely had a significant impact about my, my role uh, throughout my, this is my 34th year in higher ed. Uh, and so I hope that puts that, in, I've explained that well to put that in perspective. Absolutely. You know, it makes me think too, um, so my own experience in um, the public schools in Matamoros, Mexico, uh-huh. right? And I actually, because I had to work at an early age, I did my high school, my high school at night. Mm-hmm. So I was the only, it was kind of funny, because I was the only high school age student um, in the night school for high school. And all of my peers were older than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, some of them were married, had kids, and they were coming back, you know, to, to finish their high school. They worked. Um, most of them worked at factories um, in, in the area and came, right? And so one of the, that experience, what it did to me, and I did see even then, right, I, I had a good friend that was super smart. I saw her going to college and she paused. Like after that, she paused and, you know, we kind of kept in touch. And it wasn't until her 40s that she returned and has her degree in engineering. And, you know, and so things happen, right, for um, certain students, family, um, the need to work, right? And that's a reality that some of our Mm -hmm. students face. When I think about that, uh, first I think about what resources, how do we empower children, you know, the, the students in K through 12, not only to help them go through it, graduate, but how do we come around them holistically, right? What what are the barriers that might, that they might be facing at home? Mm-hmm. Uh, what resources do the parents need to also mm-hmm. make sure that they get to college, perhaps? And then here at A and M, and I've worked at a, at other institutions. I've seen, you know, before occasionally I had, which is a term that is now like going out of uh, of use, I think, because um, non traditional students are now the norm, right? <laughs> but um, you know, I, I worked in institutions where. Uh, what we called or referred to as non-traditional students, meaning older students that come back to school, you know, to finish their college degree, were rare, right, in my classroom. Um, Mm -hmm. I had them, but it was rare. And here, uh, at this institution, I normally, in every class, I have you know, three, four students or more uh, who who are older students, parents, uh, 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 people that uh, are military, right, that, that come back and finish their degree. And that is also, for me, a source of inspiration. Um, uh, in my view, it comes from that experience that I had in high school to see 
you know, people sacrificing sort of family time so that they can go and finish that high school diploma. And then I see our students here also like sacrificing, you know, family time or whatever else is going on in their lives um, so that they can come and finish their education. So, you know, my, I guess my perspective on education is that it is possible at any age, even if you have like a pause, right? Because it, it was interrupted for, because life happens, uh, because there's a need. Um, some of my students are, are caring for parents, right? And so it is inspiring to me, but also I see it as, a, as an asset to have them in my classroom among traditional students, right? Like th those 18, 19 year olds that are there mm -hmm. um, also seeing that effort, right? And, and that um, commitment from older students to complete degrees. Oh, I, I can totally relate to that. I have an aunt. Um, my grand, one of my grandfathers died early and she was the oldest daughter. She um, became a teacher, but she felt a responsibility to help her mother, my grandmother, and she put two of my aunts through school and they went back in her 40s to get her degree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I see there's such a hunger, uh, you know, growing up in the Valley and for first generation students, you know, the, you know there's that hope. It's inspiring on my first graduation as president last month in December to, you know, see a mother and daughter graduate together right. and walk the stage together. Or to hear grandmother to say that she raised her grandson and now she's going to see him graduate. Mm -hmm. There's something beautiful when they know that their sacrifice is your privilege. You know, my mother was an incredible woman, truly incredible. I say a woman ahead of her times. And I'll never forget that when I graduated with my doctor degree at a and in 1989, and, you know, my grandmother went as well. Looking at my mother and afterwards and reading her after the sermon was over, seeing my mother, a very strong woman, break down and cry was very, very um, moving for me because I think that it's what parents want for their kids. It really is. And, you know, my grandmother, I will never forget what she told me that day. She goes, you know, your grandfather didn't live to see this day because my grandfather was, my maternal grandfather was hugely impactful in my life. And it's about, you know, you have the ability, you know, you're, you have gifts, you know, and it's about education, education. He really was an advocate in this community about him and really was a community advocate because, you know, his father died when he was very young and he was nine. You know, my grandma says, I wouldn't have missed this day for anything in the world because I knew what this would mean for your grandfather. And so I think that it's it's about, you know, that spirit in the valley, that that magic valley, and looking at the non-traditional students. And, you know, to me, it's really important in the work that I do as an administrator um, or, you know, how that informs me, you know, in working in higher ed, that it's really important for me and for, you know, in our community here in, at A&M South Institution is to really understand the context in which people come from. Mm -hmm. 
that it's very, very critical, Elena, that we not see them through a deficit lens, but how do we leverage the strengths that they bring to the table and amplify those strengths? And when you do that, and when people know that you believe in their abilities, you know, that really goes a long way. And I think what you're talking about here is that really that, that sometimes life does happen and that takes a lot. I can't even imagine <laughs> being able to do that. But, you know, as I reflect my family, you know, here were my parents, both with high school education, came from a family of eight kids. Mm-hmm. What they were able to accomplish was amazing. I just, I don't know if I could have accomplished as much as they did with a high school education. Mm-hmm. But it's that, that grit, that resolve, And, you know, that's like that sacrifice that you talk about. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's that, and I, you know, when you look at Pie View Higher Ed, I'll never forget my dad telling me one time, you know, as I was going to college, I'll never forget after the first semester, I said, Dad, this is costing a lot of money because we didn't get any financial aid. Mm -hmm. My dad didn't believe in that. And he goes, you know, Hector, when when your mother and I brought you in the world, we said, we not only give you love and faith, but we owe you an education. But Mijito, always remember that, yeah, an education is going to give you a better life, but it's not only for you, it's meant to be shared for your community. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's the spirit that when you look at, you know, those experiences and, you know, how you work and understanding that in many ways that not everybody gets to the university in the same way. And some have had better experiences doesn't mean that those who may not look as good on paper, but maybe that road was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And our job and my job is to, to really see that success. I'm, I'm a very firm believer that when you put those structural support barriers for all students, that that can be a defining factor. So I, I just want to say that when you look at, you know, those experiences, I think it drives me not only to what I do, you know, why get entire ed, but the important decisions that you make in these roles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and you've shared this a couple of times. And so I, I just want I want it um, on the record mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> that um, also, you know, your journey, your accomplishments. And I don't know if you had plan to say it, but I we can say it twice, is that when you received tenure, uh, oh, your yeah. wife said, no, we received tenure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget that. Um, you know, it's interesting that going, if you would have told me, uh, being the Rio Grande Valley, uh, getting a doctoral degree, I would have thought, uh, you're crazy. <laughs> and then to uh, be a faculty member and work with wonderful colleagues who educated you during your doctoral program and being a flagship R1 institution, you know, and then being recently married and having two kids along the way in tenure track <laughs> um, to, you know, do, and I love doing research, by the way, and feeling like, oh, you got a publisher, you'll perish, you know, you've got two kids to feed. But getting that day of getting that letter for tenure, mm-hmm. And so excited, I said, oh, wait till I, you know, get home to tell my wife in person. So it's true. I walked through that door 
and my wife has my three-year-old daughter who is running around the house for some reason decided to almost be part naked, you know, and, <laughs> and not fully naked. And then she's holding my nearly one-year-old son who's ill and crying and miserable and she looks exhausted. And I said, you know, I got, I got tenure. She goes, no, you didn't get tenure. We got tenure. <laughs> and it's, it goes back to that principle that we, we are successful because it's really a, um, an effort. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have been, I think, many of our um, uh, communities... It's a collective effort. Mm-hmm. I've always believed that, you know, yeah, it's her tenure as well. But, you know, I always felt that on my diplomas that they're, even though they're not written on there, that I feel like my parents' name should be written just mm-hmm. alongside of mine. Right. Because it's that, that real uh, collective effort, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I, you don't lose sight of that. You know, I'll share another personal story. I'll never forget when I was in my doctoral program and my dad would call me. And he goes, you seem kind of down. And I say, you know, Dad, I'm not so sure that I, I'm meant to be here. Hmm. And he goes, you sound really down. I said, oh, I've had better days. And he goes, well, you know, I'm going to tell you something. And I wasn't going to tell you until after you graduated. He goes, I'll never understand what you're going to try to do. And I know you want to work with children. And I want, you know, it's about, you know, how they feel and think and learn. And I get that. But I can never tell you that, that I understand what you're going through. Because as you know, I only went to high school. So I thought and reflected about what is the best gift, what is the best thing that I could do for you. And he goes, I decided that the best gift that I can give to you is prayer. And so I made a commitment that I would go to church every morning before I go to work to pray for you so that you could fulfill this dream. And he goes, so on every Tuesday, you know, your mom and I go to St. Jude's and light a candle. So I, you know, I tell people that parents give what they can give. And for me, for my dad, uh, was a real man of faith, you know, to, to really look at that. So I joke that I probably had more prayers and candles than anybody else to get through <laughs> a doctoral <laughs> program. But it's like what you say is, is that families bring what they can give. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's very, very important. And, you know, when I see many students, first-gen students, families give what they know that they can give. When you feel, then they feel that there's that support at home and there's that belief in self-efficacy at higher ed where faculty and people are saying, look, we're going to, you know, you got you to do it. You know, we're not going to lower the standards. But when they really understand that there's so many people who believe in them, then sometimes that gives them, as we say, ganas, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, that hope. But I, that cannot be underestimated in many of our uh, students. And, right. and I'm a living example of that myself. And your parents and our parents give mm-hmm. what they can con todo el corazón, right? Oh, yeah. Con todo el corazón. Oh, without so, a doubt. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just last semester, one of us, our uh, students, um, you know, she mentioned, uh, you know, yeah, like los papás, they give us like what they can. Sometimes it's not financially, right? But mm-hmm. they give us la bendición, she said. <laughs> and, and it was, I don't know, and we were going through some readings, and I don't know that she had really thought about it. But then, you know, through the readings that we were doing, she's like, yes, this is what they give to us, right? Mm-hmm. And and um, mm-hmm. 
And so that's also important, right? That that sense of like, yeah, they're thinking about us, they're praying for us, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, mm-hmm. and also, you know, going back just briefly, just wanted to mention that um, here at A and M um, and and working with uh, Latinx students, having for our students having professors at this level too that look like them is also important. And for their parents, too, because even though, you know, this is a university, uh, when you work with Latino-Hispanic students, there is a possibility that you're also going to be meeting their parents, engaging with their parents, mm-hmm. right? And I already have had that opportunity here, and it's and it's great. It's great to see how much they are supporting their students, how much, how interested they are in and getting to know the professor, right? That's that's mm-hmm. teaching their students and how much value they value that, right? Um, so going back to the experiences that you said, right, where uh, los maestros lo saben or they know, you know, they know better. I don't think I know better, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but there is this sense of confianza, verdad? Mm-hmm. Um, trust um, that is built, and and they feel. Like in comunidad, no, in mm-hmm. familia, and mm-hmm. so to me, that's also important for for student growth, um, especially mm-hmm. if, you know, like many of our students uh, still live at home or, um, you know, mm-hmm. have that sort of very um, close connection with with their family. That's, went- that's very true. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you, and I think that you know, even I see that you know across the board. We have faculty here who are not Latino but are white Mm -hmm. and they're first gen. Mm -hmm. They see our first gen students here and they say, I can relate. Mm -hmm. And so I think seeing when you see people come from you from that are like you in many different ways or more than one way and they can see, you know, that, wow, look at where this person came. Maybe I can do the same. And so, you know, I I told students the other day, I was speaking to student leaders um, and people are doing uh, the leadership program here. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, don't ever underestimate what is possible. You you climb one mountain and you climb another. But I said, you know, what's really important is that I want you to envision and I envision a place of A&M San Antonio B where many of you will be in people who replace us in this role. Mm-hmm. And to see, you know, what that is possible, that self-efficacy to me that is so critical. And it's very, very important. I recognize you as a faculty member, and me as a faculty member, and as now as administrator, president. Then in many ways, we are role models. We are a symbolism of what is possible. It's really, really important that, you know, as we work with our students, that we want to teach them that content, and it's very important. But, you know, to visit with them outside of classroom and having those one-on-ones with them can really, really inspire them. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Ochoa, how were you able to work with bilingual communities in, in your research? And you said you love research. Mm-hmm. And as administrator in the various institutions you have served, and now right here mm-hmm. where we have a majority um, Latinx student population, which also mm-hmm. comes with, you know, family members that might be, or even South San Antonio, mm-hmm. which is um, a very, um, I would say, that. that the concentration would be more uh, Hispanic, Latino, and bilingual communities, right? 
Well, I give, you know, reflecting on my upbringing and realizing that, you know, leaving with the question about unfulfilled potential or how do you leverage those strengths or identifying those strengths. Mm -hmm. You know, my research has focused on how we assess the achievement and the cognitive abilities of children who speak more than one language or only one language, primarily Spanish. I, you know, I've done you know, how you assess kids from around the world and, you know, how you best assess that. Because I think it's really, really important that we understand people who speak two languages. You know, I, in my work and my students, I said, you know, if you really have a disability, you don't have this, this, the disability in English and not in Spanish. Mm-hmm. You gotta have it in, if it's a true disability, it's present in both languages. And to me, you know, my research has been real critical in really finding ways and finding true, while there will always be measurement error, of course, is how do we identify students who genuinely have a disability and also um, are not proficient in English? And also, on the other hand, it's also important that how do we identify uh, students who speak more than one language or only one language uh, with those that have true gifts? Mm -hmm. And that's very, very important to me because I think when you can really have better indicators of what, where students are at, that that's really, really important. Also, the other part of my research has been on looking at what are programming factors and psychosocial factors that influence or impede the success of Hispanic students. And so when you really look at how do you measure it and what are things that impede that, then you can you can use that research to, to really make a difference. So, you know, I've um, published in those areas about how to assess really understanding the positive effects of, of dual language, uh, what are what the impact is if when you uh, don't allow a student to develop their first language and introduce a second language prematurely without the first language being, what are the implications of that down the road? I've done research on migrants. And so I think that what I wanted to do as a, as a researcher was that it's not only what I do in the classroom to get students across the finish line, but I wanted to provide insights about how we change that trajectory and how we change that narrative, so to speak. And so I think that the reason I love research is that it it provides a means for to really uh, advocate in many ways and how what the lens and how we portray and the abilities of our students very, very differently. And, you know, looking at that as as my research, you know, research is a very happy place for me. (laughs) You know, I really, writing is just a joy. You know, chairing students and their dissertations when I was at A&M or co-chairing dissertations or serving on many dissertation committees, you know, was really, really exciting for me. But I think that as an administrator is what do I know and what can we do at the universities to put those structures for all students, all first-gen students, so and amplify that success? Because to me, if we admitted them, we know they have the abilities. Now, our job is to find the best way to do that. And so, you know, I believe in, you know, for example, if we know that some students are failing and we're not getting the outcomes that we want, 
and some students are succeeding, what are those factors that make a difference? Mm -hmm. And let's do predictive analysis to say, okay, let's not see that happen again. So we can predict, use from those studies, how do we now do more preventative work now that we know that we want these students to succeed? And at the end of the day, I think taking a very data analytic approach to that and realizing that I'm not one to believe, well, sink or swim. Yeah, they need to do the work and they need to be successful in there. But supplemental instruction, when you're dealing with people who are working 30 hours a week, going full time. So what? how do we provide supplemental instruction? What is the best way to do that? Students with um, emotional and behavioral challenges are very, very important that we look at what we need to do. They still have to do the, I'm not talking about lowering standards. Right. But to me, I think that, you know, from an ed psych perspective, you can make that difference and, and improving students are my North Star. You know, you can do all the research and make a difference. But to me, that's not sufficient. I think we also need to look at our students. And we need to look at not at our overall graduation rate, but we need to know, do we have the same graduation rates between first gen and non-first gen? Do we have those? And that goes across all ethnicities. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about the difference in graduation rates between Pell-eligible students and non-Pell-eligible students? It goes across everything. So it's about really making sure that we just don't put one number there Mm -hmm. and that we really look at those communities that maybe have not had historically that success rate. And, you know, really looking at that, then you know that you're really doing that. Because to me, it's it's about creating a critical workforce that our community really needs. Mm-hmm. But I, I really feel that sometimes we, you know, we talk about overall, and that's important. But I like to look, you know, with my training, I like to look a little bit deeper into those factors. You know, why is it that first-gen students fail this class disproportionately more than non-first-gen? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. So these are the kind of things I think that that I'm just in naturally inclined to ask and to do. And I think, you know, I'm very fortunate, you know, not only did my upbringing influence how I lead, but my my training, uh, you know, in educational psychology always begs me to ask more questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that when you say that in, you know, how I serve, I would say that's how I think that I'm, I'm influenced. And I'm more than sure that if at other institutions that it's really important that a leader utilize the strengths of his own training. And then if they don't have that, because I don't have a area of area of strength, but to bring people on your team that can bring that perspective, you're looking at behind as many rocks as possible. Uh, and to me, that's really important. And that's how I see that my uh, work and research has, um, has an impact, I hope. Yes. I One of the things that I've uh, been able to do since I started here at A&M was teaching courses uh, multilingually. Mm-hmm. And that has been a really positive experience, right, to allow students or to normalize, right, using multiple languages, in this case, just Spanish and English, right, in the classroom to, to turn in ass- assignments also, you know, whatever language they choose, um, that both, right, encourages and normalizes m- 
speaking more than one language, engaging in more than one language, but also allows them to really um, use their um, complete sort of language abilities in the work that they're doing. And one of the things that you're mentioning, right, so um, how are we, especially I think this is something I think, and I think the people in my department also think a lot about, is how, do, how are we preparing bilingual professionals to work in our community, right? In this community here in South San Antonio, and this the the growth that is happening, the many opportunities that are that are coming this way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a in a place in a region, I guess, or neighborhood in San Antonio that has been ignored for many years, and now we're bringing, you know, we're more um, intentional about bringing the services that have that this community has not had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. President Ochoa, as you know, our university, um, like I mentioned, right, it's in the South Side, and we have a large uh, majority bilingual community, Latino, uh, also low income. And as my students and I researched um, uh, last spring semester, um, unfortunately, with the lowest literacy levels in the area, Talk to us about how the identity and location of the uni- of the university informs your Jaguar Promise programs. Well, when we started the new Jaguar Promise, um, we launched it, and it'll go into effect next fall. We had a Promise program before, but it was only for people who went to high school and traditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've expanded that, and I think a key factor is that students today are entering higher ed coming from different pathways. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to honor those pathways. And a big barrier, I think, is financial. Right. And so with our new Jaguar Promise, what we're going to be doing starting this fall is that if you graduate in the top 10% of your class from a Texas high school, your tuition will be covered, your fees will be covered, and you'll have a $300 book semester book stipend. Mm -hmm. You know, that's important. And most schools... You know, we've had that promise. What we did now is that we're also saying that if you do an early college high school program and you come in with 30 hours from an early college high school, then you will get the Jaguar promise and looking at that to incentivize those students, you know, and I'm a very firm believer in early college high school, where they earn college credit and they're earning high school credit at the same time when they're taking more rigorous work. We also realize that we um, have many students, a wonderful partner uh, in the Alamo District Colleges, and they do good work. Mm -hmm. And so students feel that going to community college is there for them. We were not offering that to transfer students. So if you transfer with an associate's degree or with 60 hours, and you have an adjusted family gross income of 70K, then you'll be eligible for the Promise program. Mm-hmm. And if you graduate in the not, sometimes you're not in the top 10, but if you're between the 11th percentile and 35th percentile of the graduating class and have an adjusted family gross income of 70K or less, 70,000 or less, then you'll be eligible for the Jaguar Promise. And that is, the Jaguar Promise is to remove barriers for students who demonstrated success Mm -hmm. in high school, top 10 or top third of your class, or those students who have demonstrated success in a more rigorous, you know, early college high school or transfer that they've demonstrated their commitment, you know, in going forward. 
So to me, this is very important because, you know, that really removes the, um, the barrier. Mm-hmm. And if they come through an early college high school, whether they do that, you know, with, uh, through our at AM San Antonio or through the Alamo College District, those students don't pay for that. So it's about how do we make a dream possible to remove that barrier when they've demonstrated that they're very committed, you know, uh, to going forward. And I think that is a huge barrier for a lot of families that, you know, how am I going to, um, to do that? And I'm really proud of our program that we have here, that we do things differently here at a San Antonio, that we do a lot of outreach. We do, we have a La Familia program where, you know, on next week with the superintendent of Southwest ISD, Dr. Jeanette Ball and I, will be, we've talked to parents about how you navigate higher ed. And we go, they get training on that. And how do we empower our families Mm -hmm. to understand that? What I wish my parents would have had that, you know, now luckily my parents had siblings who went through college and, you know, I was, they didn't. How do you navigate that bureaucracy of higher ed, what it is to do that? They'll be there very, very supportive. So I think the Jaguar promise is, is our part of that role in getting students to to be uh, very important. Because I, growing up for me, although there was uh, Pan American, mm-hmm. and then it became, well, once I became older, but when I was in high school, it was Pan American, that that was like the ivory tower. You know, many people would never step, oh, I don't think I belong here. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that intimidation you know, like, do I belong here? That's not a place for me. If we can remove those financial barriers, you know, and then do La Familia program, those are, those are creating pathways that are very, very important to me. Absolutely. And I, I mean, what you has, as you described it is, is opening the doors to many, many more students. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm excited about that. I'm excited to see our university really fulfilling the -hmm. mission, right, to serve the community where we are. And they have to, you know, once they get that, it's not a free ticket. they got to maintain a certain GPA. So if you do your part, we'll meet you there. So, you know, that that to me is very, very important. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Dr. Cha, what what is unique to you personally about serving at our institution, at a Hispanic-serving institution? Mm -hmm. Well, for me, I think that it's personal. I see myself and our students. You know, I reflect, you know, when I look at the Valley in the 1960s and 70s when I grew up, I saw what a university can do to transform a community. You know, when I look at, in the Valley, what Pan Am did, it created a middle class. Mm -hmm. It created a culture of what, a belief of that you belong here, it's possible. And in many ways, I see South San Antonio very much like the Rio Grande Valley when I grew up. And for me, what is personally, is that I want to, um, as a very young institution, we're celebrating our quinceanera 15 years this (laughs) semester, and we've come a long ways. But to me, what is really personal here is that it's about, I believe deep in my soul that this university will do the same here for South San Antonio. And it's about really uplifting, uh, for me, I would say, a community. Mm -hmm. 
that has been historically underserved. It is about really about really um, seeing our students with the strengths they come with the table and leveraging those strengths and able to fulfill their true potential. Mm-hmm. And that's what that means to me personally here at AM San Antonio. Yeah. So you've mentioned, I think, already some of the key values we need to consider mm-hmm. when serving our students. Would you like to add any, any, anything else that you haven't mentioned in regards to that? I, I firmly believe, and I hope I've, I've followed that by example, mm-hmm. that students come first. They're a North Star. And I'm so impressed with the faculty and staff. They're saying, you know, I work somewhere else, but I chose to come work here because I'm from here and I want to uplift. So I say they, it's not just me, but my colleagues here really believe that students are a North Star, that that needs to be our focal point. And that to me is a you know, really important value I think another thing is that we've always, we tell, you know, I remember in many ways, if not the exact way, the, the common phrase, si se puede. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, as a faculty member and a staff member and as an administrator, we can charge students como se puede. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a value that, you know, it's there. And it's about a value of... Um, of instilling self-efficacy in our students, that to me is really, really important. I think that for me, it's it's about trying, like going and borrowing that phrase that I learned in the Valley, that since everybody knows that un- the Magic Valley, uh, you know, I want this to be called the Magic University. <laughs> and, you know, to me, it's, you know, very symbolic. I was very, very moved, Elena, when I, when I came onto this campus. And at the entrance of this campus, there's that Torre de Esperanza, mm-hmm. the Tower of Hope. And, you know, to really bring to fruition uh, Senator Madla's dream, that knowing that there was so much unfulfilled potential here and promise, you know, that, that carried that value. I have a huge sense of responsibility. And that to me is really a value that I hold that it is about being that beacon of the Torre de Esperanza and really uh, keeping that value and spirit alive and vibrant here is just really, really important. And to symbolically, when my wife and I walked with students to that and back was real, real powerful for me because it's, it's the same... That same Esperanza that my parents and my grandparents put in my ear, uh, ingrained in my brain, fired in my soul. And so it's, I think those are the key values that to me are, you know, very unique here at A&M San Antonio. And I'm glad that's the entrance to our campus. So when I see that every day from my office, you know, a mile away, that beautiful driveway, it just says that, you know, stay the course. Mm-hmm. But I, I think those are the values, I think, that are really exciting and very important to me. Um, just to close our, our conversation here, um, what are you most looking forward to in this year, 2024? I know the quinceañera celebration <laughs> is one of my the things that I'm looking forward to. <laughs> what I'm looking forward to in 2024 is... First of all, acknowledging the incredible success 
that we've had in this 15-year journey that I'm blessed to be given the opportunity by the Board of Regents of AM System and Chancellor Sharp to lead. But when I really, you know, what I mean by celebrating, look forward to that is that I know no university in its 15 years that has developed 39 undergraduate programs and 23 graduate programs. That's a huge undertaking. I've never, you know, the enrollment now has been growing at 4% every year and, you know, to have about 77, 7,800 students. That hunger is, is there. When I look at that we've awarded 18,000 degrees in the first 15 years and that we borrowed and rented it wherever we could find space because there was no buildings on this campus. You know, when you really look at, you know, uh, celebrating Frank Madla's dream, Mm -hmm. really the determination and conviction of our first president, Maria Hernandez Ferrier, I'm looking forward to acknowledging that work. And we have about 28 faculty and staff who've been here from the very beginning. And really... I look forward to celebrating and taking pause to say a job well done. But then looking forward, you know, I'm really excited about what's possible here. It's endless. You know, we have, we're a 700 acre campus uh, with over 600 uh, acres of undeveloped mesquite trees and cactus. But really, I'm looking forward in 2024 to laying the framework about how we expand our academic footprint. I think we owe that to align our academic offerings to the workforce needs of this community, and that's a responsibility that we have. That, to me, is very, very important. I look forward to um, building the research enterprise of this institution, Um, because I think that there's work here that research that will inform not only us and for the better of our community, but for Hispanic survey institutions and society in general. Mm -hmm. We have incredibly talented faculty, and we have the means to to do that. I look forward to really um, broadening our view about who we serve um, I'm really looking forward. Uh, I've met with all the superintendents, the seven superintendents in Inspired District. I look forward to building a community of common purpose. That it's very important that Alamo District College, who does great work, and us mm-hmm. be partners uh, with K-12. I'm bringing industry uh, with our industry and business and civic leaders. That we all have to put our, you know, how can we leverage the strengths of everything that we do to to move that forward. And so I think that I'm just, you know, really, really excited about what is possible here and um, to steer that and to be an advocate and a cheerleader <laughs> and vision, uh, working along with my faculty colleagues and staff colleagues. We owe that to this community. Yeah. And so that's what I'm looking forward to. And I know that, you know, when you look at that, that it's about laying a culture, a community, academic community culture here that believes in its students, that knows what is possible, and that maybe many of those students will then in turn uh, pay it forward and be faculty members here to transform. That's what I look forward to seeing. And that's what's the beauty about being in, that's our why. Mm -hmm. That's why we do what we do. And to me, it goes back to that full circle moment, Elena, about that it is about truly fulfilling 
unfulfilled potential. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is what guides me. That's what moves me. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm 63. I'm not ready to retire. And I just, the good Lord give me good health because I've got a lot of good work. So I say I'm in my fourth quarter after 34 years, but I'm going to, I'm going to go for a long overtime (laughs) because there's just such important work to do here. And I feel that uh, to be able to do that here is a, and to do it with your own community and in South Texas is just a dream come true. That's great. Dr. Ochoa, uh, muchas gracias por esta conversación. Fue mi placer. Muchísimas gracias. And thank you for allowing me the opportunity not only to speak as a, as a faculty member and administrator, but to speak as, as an individual and to uh, be able to talk about my journey. And I hope that it'll help others um, and help all the good work that we try to do here. Mil gracias. Thank you.